Amen. I, I don't even need to preach now. <laughs> hey, before, before we get into it, can I, just, can I just ask you to just look around at all the little ones? They are not the church of tomorrow. Uh, they are the church right now. And so it, it is an incredible privilege for us to just be together as one body. Um, and so I would encourage you, parents, don't be discouraged if your little one's rolling around on the ground. It's probably going to be one of mine. <laughs> if you need to, to take them to the back, if they need to roll around a little bit or just make some noise, it's not going to bother me. Please don't feel discouraged. This is an opportunity for all you older folks to show the love and grace of the Lord to all these little ones and show them that they are welcome here in this place as well. Amen? Amen. So, I am so excited to, to be doing this. The, these videos that, that we just watched are what the kids usually watch on Sunday school. So, we're trying to give them opportunities to feel like this is not just for the adults, it's for them as well. But, they don't want to listen to me talk for 30 minutes. So, we have little goodie bags. If you didn't get one when you came in, if you're a parent and your little one doesn't have one of those little Ziploc bags with little uh, coloring things, uh, you can run out to the lobby real quick or we can even find someone to bring them to you. Put up your hand or just make your way out to the lobby. There's a His Kids table. Yeah, not up front. Uh, <laughs> there's a His Kids table in the lobby that has those on there. Uh, feel free to run and grab one of those and it's got some things to keep your little one occupied during this time. So uh, enjoy. I'm excited. Anyways, uh, we just got back from Cancun. So my wife and I got a little getaway. I want to thank my mom for watching the little ones so we could do that. And, you know, after this winter, a little sunshine does the soul real good. I, I recommend it, you know. Well, if you don't know me, um, again, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm so excited to just, again, be all together. Um, we are going to be in the book of Matthew this morning. So we want you to open up God's word. If you didn't get here with a Bible, you can put up one your hand your hand, and one of our ushers would love to bring you a copy of God's word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 this morning, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So we've been in this series called Wilderness Wanderings, and we've been looking at Israel as they wandered through the wilderness in their 40 years. And, and, and how uh, poorly they did that. We've been seeing their struggles, their doubts, their, their fears, their failures. But this morning, to wrap up this series, we want to look at a better example. We want to look at Christ and how he responded to temptations and trials as he went to the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. He is our perfect example so this morning, we're going we're gonna to stand all together and let's read God's word as one voice, as one voice. So it'll be up here on the screen. I like to do this because, well, it gets you moving. And because I like to hear your voices read God's word. It's, it's a beautiful thing to share the word of God with one another. So let's read these words together and encourage one another with the word of God. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, 
Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our perfect example, that we have this moment recorded where we see you face the same trials and temptations that we face, and yet in it you never sin. And more, th more than that, Lord, you are utterly dependent upon the word of God. Father, I ask that you would uh, instill that same heart in us, that we would be utterly dependent upon the word of God for all our seasons, both good and bad, that we would run to its truth, stand firm upon it, and rest in the fact that you are a God who leads us through the wilderness to make us more like Jesus. We ask this all in his precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this is a fascinating passage in Scripture uh, because it tells us about a moment where Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted. And, and I want us to begin by just considering this fact if Jesus was even tempted in the same way that we could be tempted, right? He, he's God. He is sinless. So was it even a possibility for him to be tempted? The book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is our great high priest who had a humanity that was identical to ours, but who was also perfect and without sin. He never needed to be forgiven of a failure. He never needed to repent of a sinful choice. He needed no imperfection. He had no imperfection in his nature. So how can someone without sin, who is without sin, be tempted? Now, as humans, we all have this constant struggle, right, between the old self and the new self. Yes. Yes. It's the frustrating part, right? Now, we're being transformed into the image of Christ, and it's a process that takes us our whole lives. And sometimes I think... I'm going to live a long time. It's going to take the Lord a long time to figure, figure it out for me, right? But Jesus didn't have that struggle. He didn't have the struggle between the old sinful self 
and the new self. So how could Satan tempt him? Uh, a common objection uh, to, to, to people who uh, don't believe in Christ is that if Jesus could not sin, then perhaps he wasn't actually human. Now, we believe that Jesus is 100% God, 100% human. That doesn't equal 200%. That is just 100% God. But this begs the question, is the ability to sin what makes us human? Is your capability for sin what makes you human? Are we less human if the ability to sin is taken away? In fact, Scripture tells us that the perfected human life is one that is absent of sin. Right? Adam in the garden was a perfect human, absent of sin. Now, he was tempted and did it poorly. Christ was tempted and did it perfectly. But the purpose of our Savior dying for our sins is so that sin will no longer have a place in our lives. That there will come a day when we stand with him in glory where we will be perfected humans completely sinless. I don't know about you, but I, I can't wait for that day. Sin will be erased forever, and we will on that day know what it means to walk with God fully perfected and I would argue, the most human we've ever been. Like Jesus, we will be unable to sin, and this won't make us less human, but more human. Which means Jesus, in his sinlessness, is perhaps more human than we've ever been. Interesting thought to wrestle with. Now, Israel, as they've wandered in the wilderness, has given us this great example of what not to do. Right? If you go back through the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, you've seen them uh, again and again and again disobey the Lord, mistrust his word, re reject his promises, and just grumble and complain pretty much the whole time. But in Jesus, we have this perfect example of how to respond when we face trials and temptations in our own lives. When we wander in the wilderness of this sinful world. Now, Jesus resisted all these temptations to give us an example that we might learn also to say no to sin. It is possible, church, when you are tempted with sin to say no. I'm done with that. Don't want it. And because Jesus shares our humanity completely, because he is 100% man and can relate to the weakness of our condition, and yet never sin, again, he's given us this incredibly beautiful example to follow. So let's jump into the passage this morning and look at the example of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Let's begin with verses 1 and 2. They tell us that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, on a side note, it's no accident that Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit. How did Israel get into the wilderness? They were also led by the Spirit. They were there 40 years. Jesus was there 40 days. There are striking parallels here. And to highlight Jesus' humanity, 
Matthew begins by telling us that after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. That's one of those, well, duh. You know, most of us can't go 40 hours, let alone 40 days. And it's fascinating to know that Jesus' temptation in the wilderness comes immediately after his baptism moment. Right? When the heavens opened and the Father said of his Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then right after that incredible moment, we see Jesus led by the Holy Spirit heading into the wilderness to be tempted, to do battle with Satan. This is part of his Father's plan. Just like Israel wandering in the wilderness was part of the Father's plan, Jesus heading into the wilderness in this moment wasn't an accident. It was the will of God for him to go and show us the way. Jesus is being led into the wilderness to engage in deliberate divine combat with Satan. I want to look first at this picture of Satan, who he is and what he came to do. Look at verses 3 and 5 and 10. And we'll get a little more insight as to exactly who is tempting Jesus in the wilderness. Because the titles here given to Satan tell us something about who he is and what he came to do. Right? Verse 3 tells us that he is a tempter. One who entices. He dangles the fruit. And he offers you that fruit of destruction and makes it look real good. Then in verse 5, he's actually called the devil or or more aptly the accuser. See, he's the accuser of your conscience. Because he tempts you to eat the fruit and then accuses you when you take a bite. Look at this. It's real good. Look what he did. That's what he is. He's an accuser. And then in verse 10, Jesus calls Satan the adversary. Though he comes to us as an angel of light, he is bent on your destruction. He's the enemy of your soul, and it's everything that he desires to destroy you. He is your enemy. Uh, In each of the temptations that Satan brings before Jesus, we see him attack Jesus' trust in his father's providence and care. He's tempting Christ to mistrust, to disbelieve the Father's plan. This is exactly what happened to Israel as they wandered. They were faced with a trial and temptation, and they desired to mistrust the Father's plan. They weren't dependent upon the word of God. They were dependent upon their own needs. They were focused on the wrong thing. Look what what Satan says in verse 3. He says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I don't know about you, but a couple loaves of bread after 40 days in the wilderness sound pretty good. And Satan is tempting Jesus to exercise his divine power in order to bring relief to his human suffering. Which how often do we pray like this? God, use your divine power to bring relief to my suffering because this is what we need. Now he, Satan tempts Jesus to think that the Father wasn't going to provide 
for the hunger he had in the wilderness. He tempts him to believe that he wouldn't eat again unless he took the situation into his own hands. As if the father had somehow forgotten about Jesus' need for food. Give us this day our daily bread. Who gives it? The father. And Satan says, why don't you just turn these rocks into bread? That's no big deal. You're God. Jesus could have snapped his fingers, could have looked at those stones, and they would have been bread in an instant. Probably pretty tasty bread, too. You're the son of God. Turning rocks into bread is nothing. And Satan is tempting Jesus to mistrust the Father's plan for him in the wilderness. Because who led him out there to be hungry? The Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, leads Jesus into the wilderness to suffer and be hungry. Forty days of hunger would be quite a bit of suffering. And Satan says to Jesus, don't believe that your God's plan for you is good. That suffering is evil or bad. Even though he, that's an utter lie. Uh, look again at verses 5 and 6. Satan says this. He says, if you are the son of God, throw yourselves down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, Satan brings Jesus to the top of the temple. And if you've ever been to Israel, in Jerusalem, it's about a 500-foot drop down a jagged, rocky cliff. Right? It kind of sits on this precipice. And Satan says, don't worry. If you jump off, you're, you're, you're not even going to skin a knee. You're not going to hit your toe. The angels will catch you. They'll catch you. Everyone will believe that you're truly the Messiah if you jump off this temple and then all of a sudden you're floating through the air. Show everyone who you are. Show us your power, your abilities. Satan is tempting Jesus to presume that the Father would respond even if he disobeyed something that he said in his law by putting him to the test. Now, putting the Father to the test is not how we respond in the Christian life. Lord, if you do this, I'll do this. This is not a prayer we should pray. He doesn't act in, in, on your conditions. You can't test him and say, well, if you give me what I need in this moment, if you alleviate this suffering, if you, if you bring me out of this situation, then I will fill in the blank. That's not how it works. We're putting God to the test, and Scripture tells us very clearly to never put God to the test. We'll come back to Jesus' responses uh, after. Now, in verses 8 and 9, look at what it says. It says, the devil took Jesus to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Satan is tempting Jesus in this moment to disobey the first commandment. Really what he's doing is he's offering Jesus a way to receive the kingdoms of the world without having to go to the cross. The Father's plan is for Jesus to be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords, ruler over all. 
And there was a path that he needed to walk to accomplish that task. And Satan is trying to tempt him to bypass that. Now, Jesus knew the cross was coming. And he tells his disciples throughout his ministry, this is where I'm going. And they had no idea what he was talking about. But over and over he says, this is my father's will, that I would go and die. He knew the humiliation, the suffering, the shame that was coming when he goes to the cross. He knew what was ahead. And Satan tempts him and he says, I will give you all the kingdoms and their glory if you just fall down and worship me. You could bypass all of that. No suffering, no shame, no crucifixion. Just bow down and it's all yours. You can skip out on the cross and he's tempting Jesus in that moment to again mistrust the perfect plan of God. Now Satan's strategy is typically deception. Right, he packages up lies and he makes them look real pretty. He couldn't actually back up the promises that he was making to Jesus. Just for the record, if Jesus would have bowed down, that, that, he wouldn't have been king of the world at that point. Satan had no power to give him that. He was making a deceitful promise to Christ. But what he does is he takes what is evil and tries to convince us of, that it's actually good. Isn't this how we often fall into sin in our own lives? Right? We convince ourselves that what we're doing isn't really that bad. It, it's, it's just a little thing. It's fine. Just a touch, just a taste, just, just a little on the side. No one will know. It'll be worth it. Doing the right thing, that's nah, not as fun. It isn't as fulfilling. It doesn't bring the satisfaction that I really desire. This is not what I need. Just do it. This is how Satan packages up deception and he feeds it to you. These are the lies that he tells us when we are faced with our own temptations and sins and you've heard them in your own ear. And only after you participate in that sin do you realize, oh man, that's not nearly as good as I thought it was going to be. It wasn't actually as fulfilling or as desirous as I made it out to be in my mind when I believed that lie. See, only in the light of God's character and in the light of his word do we find out how miserable a mistake we've made to choose sin over trusting him. This is what Satan is doing here to Jesus. He tempts him with deceit. Now, on another side note, I think it's really important for us to remember something. Because temptation itself is not sin. Temptation itself is not sin. Jesus was tempted three times and sinned not once. And I want to read you this quote from Sam Storms because it just sums up this whole idea of what temptation actually is. He says, temptation in and of itself is not sin. This is critically important especially for those who suffer from an overly sensitive and tender conscience. Jesus was repeatedly tempted but was sinless. We must resist thinking that we are sub-Christian or sub-spiritual simply because we are frequently tempted. 
It was the great reformer Martin Luther who first said, you can't prevent the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. (laughs) That's wisdom right there. I like that. His point is that a temptation only becomes a sin when you acquiesce to it. That moment where you say, yes, I want that. The temptation itself is just a temptation. And in every one of those moments, we have a choice. A choice to run and flee from that sin or to succumb and and give in. Now, I want to look at Jesus' response to Satan as just an encouragement for us on how we should be responding to those moments of choice. And Jesus' responses are recorded in verses 4 and 7 and 10. And every single response to every single temptation, he says, it is written. He is utterly and fully dependent upon Scripture, upon the Word of God. He declares the authority of Scripture over that moment. Church, this is something we need to learn to do always. Jesus refuses to be tempted because he trusts first and foremost in the promises of God, in the word of his Father. He tells Satan in verse 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus refused to believe the lie that God would somehow not provide for his needs. He refused to make that same mistake that Israel makes when they say, we're starving out here. We're dying. We have no bread, no water. What, our God doesn't give us our daily bread like he promised. And what Jesus does in this moment is he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which tells him that man does not live on food alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, Satan is telling Jesus to believe something that God has failed to do. His failure to provide for his basic human needs. But Jesus didn't give in to that temptation and then go seek to supply his own needs. He was dependent upon the Father's promises and care. And he says, no, my my Father gives gives me what I need. That's what the Word of God says. That is where I put my trust. In verse 7, Jesus responds to that second temptation with, It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus refused to stand on top of a temple and jump off and see if the Father would send some angels to catch him. It seems crazy. But he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, which commands Israel not to put Yahweh to the test. And again in the wilderness, what do they do again and again? They seek to put Yahweh to the test. You're not doing this, Lord. You must not be our God. We're going to go worship these other gods. Jesus doesn't need to test his heavenly father by seeing if he would protect him from falling off this cliff. He knows that the father has a perfect plan for his life and his death, and he trusts it completely. Now then in verse 10, he responds to this third temptation by saying, It is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
This third temptation was in how Jesus could receive the kingdoms of the world by bowing to Satan or by going to the cross. He had a, a, a decision to make. Take the easy road or take the path of suffering. Now, Jesus already knew what the Father's will was. He knew it was the Father's perfect plan for him to go to the cross, and he embraced it. So he quotes to Satan, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. And the word of God strengthens Jesus' faith and keeps him steady so that in that moment he doesn't choose poorly. Church, the word of God strengthens your faith in those moments of temptation and weakness. And it allows you to fight that sin way better than you could on your own. You see the stark contrast between Jesus and Israel in their wilderness experiences. They were both tempted to believe that God doesn't keep his promises. But only Jesus runs to the truth of God's word. Only Jesus quotes the Old Testament. And only Jesus is our perfect example of how we should respond when faced with our own trials and temptations. Now on a side note, and this might rub some of you the wrong way, but I love you. So if you don't like it, come talk to me. I'll give you a hug and it'll be fine. It's great. The word of God was the only way Jesus resisted Satan. It was the only way. He did not bind Satan, whatever that means. There's some obscure passage in Scripture talk about binding Satan. If you think, I'm going to do this and I'm going to bind Satan. No. What you can do is run to the word of God and Satan will flee from you. That is what God's word tells us how we are to resist Satan's temptations. You and I have no power to bind Satan from anything. So be careful with that. And again, if you want to talk about that, let's hash it up. I love you. Jesus quotes scripture, the devil was repelled. He is our example to follow. That is our example to follow. When we face temptation, your answer is to run to the word of God. When you're feeling broken, when you're feeling like you just can't go on, when you feel like that sin is just pounding in on you and you don't know what to do, Run to the word of God. Let it be your strength, your shield, your strong tower. That's why he gave it to us. It's a precious gift. Because it reminds you that his promises are true. That he is working all things for his glory and your good. And in those moments where you doubt that truth... When you're looking at the world crashing in around you, when you see those trials and temptations and you're tempted to give in, his word reminds you of who he is, of his faithfulness to you, of his everlasting love for you, of all that he did to bring you into his family. It reminds you that in every pain and struggle, his purpose is to make you holy. More like his son Jesus every day. It's this process we call sanctification. And it begins the moment you get saved and it ends the day you die. You know, there's no sanctification in heaven. Did you know that? 
you'll be perfect and holy. You won't need it. That day you stand face to face with your God, that process will be done. Now that process of sanctification is often a slow and painful one. And we must remember that even when we fail, even when you have moments of weakness, your salvation is kept secure in heaven. Now our job as followers of Christ is to persevere, to pick ourselves up after we fail, and to continue to pursue holiness until that day our salvation is finally realized. And I, I want to close with a quote from John Bunyan. He wrote a book called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And this guy struggled with sin. He struggled with the weight of his own sin so much so that he would just constantly beat himself up. He, he, he wrestled with the shame and the, and, the, and the failures in his own life. And in his book, he writes this. I want to just have you reflect on this incredible truth. He says, one day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just before him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, did my chains fall off my legs indeed? I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. Church, your righteousness is not yours. It's Christ. Your righteousness is Christ in you. That means there's nothing you can do to add to it. Because Jesus isn't weak and pathetic. He has all the righteousness you'll ever need. And he has declared you as his child. His beloved. And he has given you his absolute holiness. By dying on the cross for your sins. This truth should empower us by God's spirit to fight our sin, to flee temptation, and to press on towards the prize. This truth helps us pursue holiness knowing that your salvation is secure and the righteousness of Christ is already yours. See, the righteousness of Christ is not something you get later on. It's something that is pronounced over you on the day of your salvation. This one belongs to me. This one is mine, holy, righteous, perfect. And as we grow in this life, in that holiness, and the Holy Spirit conforms us into the image of Christ, and all the trials and temptations we face in this life melt away in the promises of our loving Heavenly Father 
who has given us the righteousness of his son Jesus so that we can have eternal life with him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together, church. Father God, we thank you for the righteousness of Christ. That it makes us holy though we are not holy. We thank you for that precious gift that frees us from sin and then allows us to resist the enemy because we know it's not dependent upon our salvation but upon the salvation given to us through Christ's righteousness. And so for that today, Lord, we just say thank you. What a precious gift. May it strengthen our hearts to to follow more completely to be molded into the image of uh, your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.